While this podcast platform typically explores the spiritual biographies of practitioners in Myanmar, along with delving into the different meditation traditions there, we have somewhat shifted our focus to respond to this current crisis. While we will definitely continue to interview guests who can share Buddhist perspectives and impart wisdom at this time of need, we will be expanding our work to talk with a wider range of speakers who can add to the breadth and depth of our coverage so that listeners can better understand the nature of the current crisis. And if there are additional topics or guests that you would like to suggest, please do so by writing us at info at insightmyanmar.org. With that, let's get on to our show. Letter to a political prisoner. Sue Pseudonym writes a letter to a friend who has been arrested and imprisoned. The dates and locations, except for Shrepita and Insane, have been modified for security reasons. May 2nd, 2021, at 4pm, is the last time I spoke to you. The following day, while I was having my first coffee of the day, I received a message from a friend in Yangon asking me if I knew. If I knew what? The fact that you had been arrested by the military at 2am in the apartment in which you had taken refuge in recent days. And since then, no one knows where you have been taken to nor what happened to you. In another life, I wish I had known on the 2nd of May what would happen that night. I hesitated to offer to speak directly to you since you seem to have a good internet connection for once. I really wanted to swap our instant messaging habits for an actual face-to-face moment with you. I'm not sure why I didn't offer it to you. It might be because you told me that you now have a good connection available, that you no longer need to connect from the internet cafes in the city center to send news, and that we therefore have time. Yes, we had, in short, a life ahead of us to talk to each other, until that life was stolen from us overnight. Since February 1st, the day of the coup, you have resumed your pace of political activism that you had decided to put away to invest time in a green space in the peripheral Yangon. You had even started growing organic vegetables that you sold nearby. I like to think that you had reconnected with nature and I suspect that it did you good. Seeing pictures of you in a hammock by a small river appearing on my Facebook wall from time to time was soothing. I also noticed that you reconnected with your old team in your new environment as if fate had started knocking on your door at the end of January. A few days later, the blow came and it was together with them that you decided to continue the path of resistance resuming the rhythm of underground activities. Our messages, photos of fresh tomatoes and cucumbers disappeared. The rhythm of our exchanges intensified. We were in touch every time you had access to the internet. We are an encounter out of time and space. One that can be qualified as unexpected, where two worlds very different create a symbiosis. Electric, at times explosive, but above all full of compassion. With the news of the coup, I saw myself promoted to new functions. I became your database, your hard drive, 
your search browser and your body. I knew if you were okay and when you were not. I followed the events in Myanmar by our exchanges. I walked with you in the streets of Yangon alongside thousands of peaceful demonstrators in February. And I walked a few months later in these same streets in fire and blood. I ran with you under fire from the soldiers. I felt the loneliness of those apartments where you lived alone, where you were hiding. I experienced the sadness that sometimes assailed you when you saw the fate of some of your comrades. I feared the worst that night in April in your hideout in North Oklahoma. There was gunfire and soldiers right in front of your hiding place. It was all through you, Ago. As in reality, I wasn't there. You were in this mythology alongside thousands of others, face to face with fate in a standoff with the inhumanity and injustice of the junta. You made your courage and that of thousands of others in Myanmar, the light intending to burst the darkness. But darkness has this indescribable way of sticking to the surface, far from impossible. It requires persistence to be removed and that perseverance you are all proving to have. Not to lie to you, your fate began to worry me early on. You have always loved taking care of the young people you have taught in recent years, and many have approached you asking for your support, which you gave. Make no mistake, oh how much Burmese youth need people like you, like the team right now, and unfortunately there is solidarity and compassion that exists, among other things. However, Connecting with so many people and many different groups can slowly become a threat in an environment full of informers. And yet, indeed, there was a mole. You had given me warnings, not about the mole which you did not know about, but the rest. You told me several times that you were ready to give your life for this revolution, for the truth. Not that long ago, you told me again that you would continue until you would be arrested. I knew I was no match for you when trying to encourage you to leave the country, when arguing you how much your safety depended on that move. Who was I to interfere with the plan you and the stars had agreed upon? You are a formal political prisoner who has already been locked up for several years and a new arrest would be brutal for you and your loved ones, of which today I am a part. Therefore, on the second, we lost track of you. You lost your new hiding place with Wi-Fi, and you have frankly spoken, lost all your freedom, and slipped into this other world. This dematerialized world makes one shiver down the spine. It's silly, but habits are hard to change, and I thought several times about sending you a message to ask where you were and if you were holding on before reminding myself that my message would certainly be read by the fools, the tormentors in green uniforms and boots. We didn't know where you were. We didn't even know if you were still alive. To replay your arrest in the middle of the night made me nauseous. However, I have replayed it so many times that I started wondering about the details. In particular, are activists arrested in their pajamas? 
I think those nonsensical thoughts just kept me from overthinking the distress you must have felt when you heard them smash in the apartment door at 2am. So began those endless days searching for you, looking for a needle in a haystack. In contact with those in Yangon and indirectly your family, we have tried to contact the groups of people who seem to be in the best position to obtain, in the long run perhaps, information on your whereabouts. They managed to contract a lawyer who told us you were most probably in Shrepita being interrogated. Pause. Right. The words are chilling. So ago, you two were taken there. And I know that you had already experiences of physical and psychic miseries during your first imprisonment. We weren't 100% sure if you were there. That was a guess like many others. No one can go there and no lawyer has access to the place. You're very sadly at the mercy of the boots, tortured to get information from you. We knew you two would never kneel down no matter how much difficult it was and how unbearable the situation had become. Two weeks later, your family received a phone call from an unidentified source and they told them you had been injured during interrogation. Finally, we had found you. But in what state? We didn't know, but you were still breathing a goal. Days later, you were finally transferred to Insane. And at that moment, we all felt a kind of relief. With this feeling, one can realize the human and destructive madness of what is happening in Burma. Insane has a dirty reputation and is described by former political prisoners as hell on earth. But now it's better than the worst of the worst. And you have a lawyer who can come and see you sometimes. He sure won't be able to do much, but in a way, there is someone, and they are trying their very best. The fate of prisoners is now defined by an improvised courtyard in the corridors of Insane Prison. Your sentence will be announced in a couple of weeks, or maybe months, and we suspect they won't make it easy. They don't have that reputation. I don't know how you fit within these walls or what you do to pass the time. I imagine you sometimes meditating, sometimes contemplating the rain. I wish you to have around you other political prisoners as peacefully passionate as you are and exchanges that allow your flame to remain alight. There are many political prisoners in Burma and today some of them have become prominent figures of the opposition to the junta. Their journeys and the person they have become are a strength to find a little hope and to color the uncertainty of the future. Many of you in there are claiming this destiny and embodying the struggle for freedom. And we respect you all so very much for that, Ako. Whatever they say, you know it already. Holding the light of freedom truly makes a difference. Your sacrifices are not in vain and the sparkling lights are breaking through thick darkness. Take care of yourself. I ask it to the moon. On the other side of those gray walls, the revolution continues and we are waiting for you. And even though we are disconnected for a while, 
we continue to share the same starry sky. And if we know how to listen, I was told the stars could also pass on messages. Until soon ago, Yama. As long as political prisoners exist inside Burma, Burma will not be free. They represent the struggle for democracy, human rights, equality, and freedom for the people of Burma. Assistance Association for Political Prisoners. Hi, I'm Lala. I am a mom, a teacher, teacher educator, and entrepreneur. I'm all the way from Myanmar. Um, in my life, uh, education has been quite rooted passionately since I was young, um, mainly because I wasn't the best student of myself. <laughs> my mom was a teacher, and uh, all my aunts were teachers. They had difficult uh, time raising me because I had uh, some challenges as a dyslexic and a kid with ADHD, running around hard to pin down. <laughs> but uh, thanks to my mom, a teacher who didn't give up on me, um, I became uh, literate and um, went, did okay with my education as well. Uh, now as a ed tech entrepreneur, um, I led uh, 360 together with my uh, husband, Min. Uh, one late night in March, uh, we, were on, we were at a house in a uh, three-story building on top of it, uh, serving, uh, do, doing the community watch for the community. And as we live on the main road, we see the police and you know uh, soldiers' cars passing by and Soon after, we see another car, you know, ambulance car. That's kind of routine we do after 8 p.m., you know, because 8 p.m. is a curfew time. And one night around 11 p.m., I suddenly saw uh, so many soldiers and so, so many soldiers' trucks uh, arriving and also police cars. As a curious uh, person, I have phone in my hand. I was started filming and now uh, my hand's shaking, but I'm filming and then the soldiers get off from the truck and with the gun outboard <laughs> towards, you know, where I was sitting and I decked down and I switch off the camera. Only then I realized my camera has a light on when I was filming. That's why they saw me and, you know, about to shoot. It was so scary. Um, very close <laughs> and I deck and just watch what they were going to do and they started, you know, firing rounds of um firing rounds and removing the barricades, you know, uh in, in the community. We live on the main road so we watch um 
we do the community watch and report to the community during the groups um what's happening you know how many uh soldier trucks and how many police trucks coming and that was very scary night <laughs> and they didn't come into the house but uh it was so close this they stand um they were loitering around the house for uh, a few uh hours and taking away all the um barricades barricades um that was one of the scary encounter and second time was when i was hiding uh when i was going to my sister house for you know hide out and right in front of the um the city gate not the gong township there was uh, a lot of soldiers uh stopping the people coming into the not it's uh, after the bridge and i got off and they were pushing people into the um prison truck luckily um that truck was full <laughs> so he let me get back on the taxi and get away you know go away and just push me back that was another close encounter and before the february 1st coup had you ever personally had encounters with burmese police or military in a lighter experience i i'm a teacher myself um i <clears throat> sorry <laughs> uh i have trained many police uh in my in my earlier uh, life as an english language teacher in 2011 or 12 there was a asian um Myanmar was the asian chair and i was training you know batches of polices for the asinopole conference and you know all the asian related um trainings and police reform you know uh, i was part of it so my encounter was police that time was as a professional teacher you know <laughs> i was not afraid of them they were my students yes all right so this was really quite a different experience of uh interacting with police not as someone that you were training as participants and that in some ways they were deferring to you as an authority but to being someone on the street that was basically stripped of all rights and all legal processes of which anything could happen at any moment and there wouldn't be any real recourse for that yeah i i i myself also have encountered uh, soldiers uh, you know in my uh, uh, previously, and uh, uh, but but those are very different, you know. Um, uh, uh, I grew up in Yangon, and, and Yangon never, almost never had that kind of a uh, uh, brutal uh, experience with with uh, military, especially if you're not uh, that much of a political uh, person. Uh, so I am just like any other people. Uh, 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 never really quite afraid of soldiers. And uh, uh, at one point, uh, I was uh, doing some research in Shen State. And uh, then I, uh, I, found, I encountered a soldier coming to me and started to ask questions. And I just uh, uh, answered it nicely. And he seems to want to make something and, and try to... Uh, imposes uh, authority to me, uh, but I was 
too naive that that's what he was doing. I didn't know I was just doing it nicely, and he was a bit of a taken aback. And and then I just reflect on that later on. Then he was uh, came into came into me as a kind of like a suspect, and he was uh, basically uh, uh, you know asking me questions that I was just doing it nicely. But uh, that's a that's a different experience. Uh, and and after the coup uh, and and uh, all the you know things that we we only heard uh, reported. Uh, in a, in a more uh, border areas and in a, in the areas uh, where you know a lot of uh, other minority ethnic groups are there, uh, things like uh, the human rights violations and everything that happen. And after that, we uh, the the whenever we encounter uh, soldiers and and uh, uh, police, and it's not the same anymore. You know the the kind of. Uh, uh, how we see them and how we feel threatened by them. Yeah, and I can't imagine how traumatic that must be to live in a country where this potential of violence and brutality is perhaps has been there under the surface and is actually being perpetuated in places outside of the Bamar city centers, like in the ethnic areas, ways that, that you haven't personally encountered. Right. Well, these these kind of experiences are kind of relevant to to our work, especially because uh, nowadays, now you know, just a few days ago, uh, the the military regimes uh, reopened the schools, so there's a lot of uh, our parents uh, don't want to send their kids to schools, and they didn't, uh, they they chose not to, and uh, you know. There's a one reason is uh, some sort of uh, strikes or protests, you know, in protest that they don't, they didn't uh, send their uh, go to uh, send their kids to school, and another reason is uh, they are also scared of uh, uh, COVID uh, reimagine, uh, which is happening also uh, very in the recent days, and and also this this uh, encountering the. The, the uniform personnel is also quite, uh, it should be quite traumatic for, for our children as well as uh, adults who, who um, uh, hear or, or know about these stories and, and, and some of them probably have already encountered them themselves. So, so this is where our work come in that uh, uh, the, the home learning and uh, learning from home, the uh, home-based learning uh, uh, solutions that we try to provide uh, is is uh, place, uh, places like this, a uh, time like this uh, should be a tremendous uh, uh, success uh, accessible for uh, general populations in Myanmar. Yeah, there's there's really so much trauma right now in Myanmar that you're touching upon and you talk about parents that don't want to send their kids to schools. It's my understanding that there's a lot of military and soldiers that are actually posted at the schools. Is that is that true? And what do you know about that? Yeah, in uh, big cities like Yangon, we saw the pictures of soldier tracks, you know, in, in front of the school gates and also parents also waiting, you know, as a uh, guarding. Um, if they choose, when they choose, some of them who chose to send the kids to school mainly is a military family and uh, there's in big city we saw the photos like that the soldier tracks you know near the school gate and just 
waiting, you know. And in the small towns, uh, classrooms, we saw the photos of soldiers letting the kids play with the guns, you know, in the classrooms. And that's, it's a big no-no how even, you know, to think about it. And, uh, teachers and soldiers inside the classrooms, you know. So when, uh, a mom like me, I would never, you know, <laughs> uh, think of, uh, risking my child's life because we see, uh, we see the incidents, the recent incidents of, um, the soldiers using children and people as a human shield, you know. So. That is reported, uh, in the, in the case of Mintet, uh, when there's, there were, there's been shootings happening. Yeah, they were using uh, civilians as human shields. And, you know, you're talking about a nation that is nowhere near recovering from trauma, let alone still living through the trauma every day of these terrible occurrences still happening. And then you're talking about schools that are opening and sending your kids into a school where soldiers with full ammunition and weapons are inside and outside the compound. Um, they are acting uh, sometimes without any discipline, with a free range to do what they want. They're sometimes drugged up, given drugs by their uh, some some type of of drugs by their uh, their officers, so that their behavior is even less in control. And it just sounds like a terrible storm of a situation where. Uh, there's there's really no protection for these kids and for their their traumas and outside triggers of um, what should be a safe space of education. Oh, I forgot to mention about one other incident of um, the soldiers uh, coming to our house. One day we came back from outside and we got a call from home not to come back home because there are so many uh, police trucks and soldiers, you know, out in the daytime, not even at nighttime. Nighttimes become kind of like uh, regular and we just had to live through with it. But out in the open sand and they, they were there and we were almost home, you know, just one bus stop uh, away from it. So we passed uh, in front of our house and so many, so many soldiers and, you know, police um, showing the presence, you know, intimidation. Uh, so that evening we decided to um, not, you know, live in the house anymore and went out in a um, remote area camp. Uh, where we live with other people, uh, other families who also, you know, are taking refuge uh, in that place. And one on a happy note is, uh, although there is no internet in that place, the children, students, you know, uh, of different ages, they are learning, continuously learning with our apps. You know, that was uh, on, on a happy note that because our learning apps design not to need internet, you know, um, so after the first downloads, they have it in their tablet or phones, and then they can continue to learn without internet. So we were, it's kind of reassurance of what we do and importance of what we do uh, in a time like this, you know, when the military decided to cut down internet as they wish, and it's, um, yeah. Right. So when you're talking about these three incidences, these three encounters with police and military after the coup, uh, do you believe these encounters were happening because you were being targeted for any specific reason personally, or was this just kind of the general terror state that was happening at this time? We cannot know for sure. <laughs> 
And in our neighborhood too, there's a, a friend of mine. Um, uh, he's also quite high profile in the country. Both men and I are quite high profile. There are not many people who study in the States for bachelor, master, and especially both of us study policies, public policy, public administrations, and also providing policy consultants to the policy consultations to the, you know, previous administrations. And, uh, we're not only entrepreneurs, but also, you know, deeply rooted, uh, Statesmen and you know for rebuilding the state. So uh, for high profiles like us, it might be targeting us, or it might be just in- intimidation um, methods that they usually do. But we didn't dare to figure it out, <laughs> find out you know face to face. We avoided, hide it. Yeah, after we realized that uh, we may not be safe at home, we decided to hide in a monastery compound outside of the city. Uh, there are lots of uh, people who are there, you know, uh, the spiritual and religious compounds like these can be a great source of refuge and protection, uh, especially right after the coup. Um, but even that is kind of changed now because uh, uh, soldiers right now targeting church, mosque, and, and even monasteries uh, now. Mm, so how did you determine where to go to, and then what was that trip like as you were trying to go a bit deeper into hiding? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and living in Yangon, going outside, like Kumen said, we have to have uh, two sets of phone. You know, the regular phone, we have to leave it at home. And another phone is outside phone to communicate back with the family. Um, that phone is clear. It doesn't have anything, you know. Uh, if they found any evidence um, that they don't like, they not only take away the phone and arrest it, and next day, you know, inform the family to pick up either the body or the person with many, you know. Um, there, there were many incidents of uh, people got arrested and the next day they just send the body back, you know, or inform the family to pick up the body. So we don't want any of those uh, we wanted to avoid. And even going out to downtown, you know, when we had to do the necessary chores, um, the driver alone uh, is not enough to be watching out. You know, the person next to the driver and the person at the back seat. We cannot just listen to the music and go. We have to like watch all the sights. And from time to time, we have to make U-turns because soldiers waiting. You know, in, in the you know ten yard in front of us, we have to make the sudden U-turn and run. You know, like that. So, li- living in Yango, it, it, it was. The safer place, safest place we know, you know, because we both of us were born and raised in Yango, but came like a totally different, you know, uh, area. And one thing that needs some appreciation is that uh, all the imperfection we have with the so-called democracy uh, before the coup, uh, people were able to speak out. People can criticize the government. Uh, some sort of dialogues were happening, some lively debates happening, and people were not afraid anymore. Unlike, you know, in the previous uh, time when military authoritarianism was in place in Myanmar, which is not long ago. But all this progress has taken the U-turn the day that could happen and getting worse since then. So 
for many people in Myanmar, it wasn't just a, a matter of uh, this party versus that party. It wasn't just a matter of NLD versus um, the military or green versus red, um, uh, liberal versus uh, conservative. It was it was the democracy itself. Um, the, the freedom itself is really getting assaulted uh, quite rudely. And and it's it's more like um, the authoritarianism versus democracy. There are a lot of people who who were really critical of NLG government um, before the coup, but you know they are they are now vehemently opposed uh, to the coup um, because of that. Yeah, you know, one question I have, um, as you're talking about how things have changed so dramatically from being a place where you do have certain laws and rights that even if they're not uh, up to the standard you'd like to live in, they, they at least provide basic protection to having to live by law of probability. And one of the things I'm thinking about is just some of the erosion of democratic principles we saw in my own country, in America, with Trump's presidency. And it could have been a lot worse than it actually was. And one of the safeguards that people have mentioned is that there were people in certain positions, high to low, in the American government that when push came to shove, they simply would not go too far over the line to be able to support the undemocratic and um, the autocratic tendencies that we were seeing in Trump. And that was one of the things that kind of safeguarded our system. And so thinking back on the Myanmar example and thinking of these police that you personally trained, Lala, that you were there in a professional capacity, that this was both of your cities uh, walking around and interacting with people and having some kind of personal contact, that these are still individuals within a system, and overnight the system has changed into being something that was tending towards democracy, towards tending towards lawlessness. But you still have individual figures, that, as in America, that have some kind of decision in their own life where they're going to enact lawlessness or some kind of personal protection or rights. And I, I don't mean to compare the two countries or examples because they're very, very different. I only mention that comparison because it, it's a similar instance of a uh, of a figure at the top who's tending towards lawlessness and then individual people in their positions that are having to choose personally how they uh, follow that within their own position and their role. And so someone like you both who have worked with in a professional capacity with these people who have interacted with them uh, before the coup, why do you think it was that so many of them just seem to change overnight, seem to not be able to have this kind of ethical stand of resisting these brutal orders from above? I used to have that uh, question in my mind when I was doing the training. At first, I refused to do the training, you know, to the police. Um, and then um, I was curious, you know, why they were the way they were, you know. I was uh, the, the 1996 uh, uprising and 1988 uprising, so, you know, the... the previous uprisings that I had encountered. So when I talked to them, when we became like a quite um, build a trust of, you know, um, this person I can trust, this person I can list trust uh, type of level, then they told me that 
when they were, I asked them, why did you behave that way? You know, cracking down the monk's head, you know, in the 1996 night uprising. I said, what make you do that? You know, it's beyond the order. The order, you can always refuse. And, you know, they said it's not that simple and easy. The whole family lives in the compound, you know, and their family's life is at, at risk. And also they were um, deprived from food and sleep and, you know, um, regular human routines, you know, like they had to live in the pavements, in the very severe tense case like uprisings, then the soldiers were um, made to live on the streets, you know, for days and nights without going to the like bathroom, having a meal, three meals a day, maybe one meal or no meal the whole day, the weekend, and they cannot think. And, you know, so in a way, they were trained to think that because of these people in the street, we are put into this position. Because of these people in the street, our family is in danger. So they see the people not as their people, you know, they see people as their enemy and also drugs, you know. Um, so the police has become very drug addict and also, you know, they are drunk addict too, uh, alcohol addiction and trying to heal their guilt, you know, over times. And a lot of the police, um, they have this problem, you know, trying to heal in their own way. Now this happened and we still see the same pattern, you know. In 1988, uh, my daughter was, uh, I, I was my daughter's age and I, I live with my grandma who is very politic, politically active and she took me to the, you know, one, uh, one talk show after another in the streets and I saw, you know, when she covered my eyes and then I was not supposed to look but as a curious child, I peeked and I saw the hats hanging on the trees, you know. So that was my encounter when I was my daughter's age. And then I passed through, you know, uh, 1997, 1997, uprisings. And now again, you know, it's it's a repeating cycle of this, you know. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And when you look at some of the pressures that different Republicans were in in our country of Trump's anti-democratic leanings, you're talking about political pressures. You're talking about career pressures. You're not talking about threats to one's family, to one's life, uh, not being able to think rationally in terms of being deprived of different types of food or sleep or safe quarters, uh, let alone being fed drugs and alcohol. And so, uh, yeah, the, this is um, enormous pressure that even the security forces are under in terms of not being human to be able to think through rationally and process and make the right decision. And so they're also put into a position where they're being given terrible orders and very little leeway in terms of what it would take to not follow them. Of course, some have defected and some have refused to follow them, but there's just so much more pressure on them to um, uh, and, and, and less ability for, um, for being able to look at alternatives. Um, uh, another important point to make is that um, since the first coup happened in 1962, the education system in the country has been systematically uh, destroyed. 
the the road learning and the over emphasizing on the authority of the teachers as uh, imparting his of our, our students um sorry um imparting his of our, our knowledge uh, to the students um and and where you know students just um, passively receiving the the the, the knowledge um this model of education has uh, also contributed uh, to uh, prolonging the authoritarianism that we have in in the country if 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 you are successful as a uh, passive student who simply memorize uh, the the materials and uh, your success is determined only on how much you can materialize uh or what a what a um, authority presented to you, uh, be it uh, a textbooks or a one-way lecture by an all-knowing, infallible teacher, then you are bound to be a passive citizens uh, who just look for authority figures to tell you what is good or or what is not uh, in the in the political political arena. This is where. Um, our our um, uh, applications that we're making can come in. In these applications, we promote uh, self-directed learning uh, using the tools uh, that we invented. Uh, the teachers uh, then can become really good guides or facilitators that uh, nurture students' intellectual curiosity and facilitate the process of uh, students' own discovery and learning as opposed to dictating everything that students' uh, education is about. Yeah, as an educator ourselves and also parents and um, um, also who are spiritual, um, we believe that learning and education is beyond uh, schools and also beyond the knowledge. It's discerning the wisdom uh, and learning the ethical values and, you know, um, more soft skills. The, the necessary skills that in our time that teachers can provide, it's now the students are taking the initiative and doing the learning, you know, thanks to all the medias and exposures that they have um, now. Um, so we want to shift, like Kominsa, we want to shift the model of uh, sage on the stage to more guide on the side. But it won't happen unless there are tools around that people can have access to freely and also affordably and also the tools to empower the teachers to become super teachers, you know, not just uh, downloading and loading the knowledge to the student's brain and testing on their memory like a better parent, who is the best parent in the classroom, get top one, you know, not that game anymore. To change the game and also to expand their horizon of um, being being more problem solver, you know, being more active roles, active citizens, other than um, just sharing what they know uh, many decades ago to the young age is not okay anymore so we want to build we wanted to build the tools learning tools for teachers and students and that's where we started you know in 2016 in silicon valley and 2017 in myanmar and um, we now have a team of 70, 80 individuals working you know before the coup uh, working for us full time and we have 
15 apps with uh, uh, over 400,000 downloads users in Myanmar. And we want to continue. And now is the time um, to really essential, you know, for students to be safely learning at home and continuous access to learning. And we think it is critical for us to um, keep pushing, you know, and providing uh, democratizing access to the learners. Right. So that's probably a good point to transition a little bit more to your background and what you were doing with your company. You described a bit about the theoretical underpinnings of what you were trying to do and why you were trying to do it and your goals and objectives. Maybe you can share a bit about actually what it was, how it worked technically, what the system was that you were trying to build and how learners and students in Myanmar specifically were able to make use of it for child education. Yeah, uh, myself, uh, for 18 years prior to becoming an edtech entrepreneur, I have worn many different hats, elementary school teacher, teacher's trainer, private school founder, and education policy aggregator analyst. And uh, even trying to set up a nonprofit American Liberals College in Myanmar in 2011. <laughs> I was born into a low-income, middle-class family of government service and access to education was a luxury that my parents cannot, uh, my family cannot afford. And I also struggle as struggle in school as a dyslexic student. <laughs> and but I made it through uh, with the help of my mom, teacher. And regardless of my struggles and uh, financial situation, I won you know, scholarships to study abroad. And personally, I feel indebted to and privileged so much so that I want to give back to the country I was born into and make a difference and help other students like me, you know, who need uh, extra help. <laughs> who are not stupid, uh, but need extra help, you know, uh, visualizing the learning, you know. So... When I saw the technology like augmented reality, I got so excited that you know things, the abstract things, become visible. And once they could figure it out how to make it learning, you know, it sticks. It's also build confidence and in in their own learning. So we want to build a company, and that's what we have been doing. And uh, I. Yeah, I'm born educator. Uh, I mean, born in Myanmar, born and raised in Myanmar, and being in the education family. And uh, my husband, Min, also in the educator's family. And we're so privileged, you know. <laughs> Right. So it sounds like you definitely had your own background in education, the value of education uh, as a student, and then as well as being a teacher, a teacher trainer, looking into learning acquisition and being on that side of it. And you've certainly also had a sense of service to your country and wanting to look at uh, improving the lives of people there, and then the policy side as well, just looking at what does it take to change a society and starting first with public policy and uh, reforms at the very top and seeing that there's more effective ways to come from the private sector. But the missing piece in all of this is the tech side. You, tech is a whole other field of development and knowledge and skill and everything else. So did you also have a background or a training in tech or did you know people? How did that part come along when you were creating the uh, after the Harvard master degree, I got into the Google's innovation. I got Google Innovation Grant to study exponential technologies uh, in Silicon Valley. And uh, inspired from the Kennedy School of Government, I challenged myself. I 
what can I do for my country? And by the study at the Singularity University, I came to realize how the technology can aid in creating sustainable impacts to millions, you know, and billion, even billions of people. And I used to think that public policy is the only way to make system level change. But I study, um, when I study about disruptive innovations and, you know, technologies, it carries the risk that might not work. But if we embrace the uncertainty of innovation, yeah, I must say that Lala's uh, education at Singularity University really help her by extension help us, uh, you know, uh, extend our boundary and thinking really big. Uh, they really uh, encourage her and us to to think uh, uh, for the uh, to look for the bigger pictures and uh, to really uh, make a difference in a way that uh, normally people wouldn't uh, look for, uh, such as, you know, to, to really strive for the solutions that that's never been there before, and, you know, and, and also not just look at Myanmar, but also, you know, look at the whole regions or even the whole, the whole world, you know, while we're thinking about it. Yeah, when I took my place at Singularity University, uh, I was challenged to come up with an idea that will potentially change the lives of one billion people. And my heart naturally turned to home as Myanmar is, you know, comes stand by the lack of so many things, learning, resources, infrastructure, and why only 50 million people, we have so much to repair, build, and heal. But I see the opportunity to impact in education, you know, as a educator myself, it, learning is my passion and learning. And I, we both believe that education is the catalyst for development and sustainability and fair economy. And it's also the catalyst and transformation of a democracy, you know, from juvenile to mature and durable. So we see that education is beginning, middle, and end uh, for creating a nation that we pray for and strive to achieve. So we both invest that although we come from different places, I'm from me from the education, but men from the uh, environmental policy, um, we come to build this education technology company. And, you know, we, that's, that's our two, that's our bit to contribute back to the society. <laughs> right. So all of these different factors and aspects came together in the creation of your app coming from an education background, a public policy background, a, a sense of service to the country, uh, getting into technology and learning about how to actually make apps that work and reflect the methodology you're aiming for. So all of this came together in the role that you wanted to play in supporting the democratic transition that was going on in the last decade and reforming the educational sector, as we see uh, how important that is from uh, educating uh, the youth in your country to grow up and to take on those values that you're teaching through education in a holistic way that aren't putting, isn't putting the teacher as an authority at the center of the classroom and the center of the learning and of right and wrong and having learning things rote, which as we know happens not just in the schools, but also throughout the monasteries these days and wanting to open it up to a more critical, uh, open-minded examination of content. You put all of that into your app. So that happened a few years ago. How were those last few years and the launch of the app? How was it received? It's a lot of learnings. <laughs> a lot of learnings and uh, 
we believed in the hybrid mod model or technology and human interaction. So technology itself is not magic. You know, we do not give somebody a device, then expect all sorts of wonderful things automatically happen. So we address the dramatic shortage of quality teachers, text, and learning aids in Myanmar, and using the video, audios, and 2D, 3D graphics. You know, I myself is a very visual learner, but I so scared of science because science is being taught in English language that I do not understand. I just learned it by heart. But when I married to a scientist and he even reads a books that's in you know science, like three books parallelly, I admire him and I also jealous of why don't you help us you know, learn science in a more fun way you know he loves science so uh, using this uh, 2d 3d graphics and augmented reality on the digital mobile phones impaired with the flashcards and government textbooks and we provide the innovative and affordable sets of education tools and uh, credit goes to Min he's a chief product officer and he managed you know nine teams of product development teams building the project you know throughout learning ourselves and also helping our team learns as well because what we are building is uh, not uh, it is something that's not existed before so we learn as we go iterate rounds and rounds of iteration and we now have uh, uh, 15 beautiful uh, learning apps in Myanmar and yeah and these are commercial sites and from the uh, free sites we have five uh, totally free apps so altogether 20 apps in Myanmar and about 400,000 users so far. Okay when you talk about this augmented learning tool this app that you've created and you said it's never existed before uh, as a clarification did you mean that nothing like this has ever existed in Myanmar language and to Myanmar students or as far as you know is this the first kind of educational app for augmented learning that has ever existed period Well uh, there's some similar products in the market um, especially in the global market but as far as we can find our our applications are the first um, uh, really the augmented reality based uh, learning apps that are curriculum based and also there have also been some development in the labs of some major research uh, university and facilities and many of them are developed for schools and some niche markets uh, we are the pretty much the first, uh, uh, if, if one of the first, if not the first, uh, to create um, this kind of uh, applications for commercial and mass market. So it is fair to say that uh, our apps are first, you know, one of these first kind, not just in Myanmar, but in, in the world. That's also why we got recognized by organizations like um, UNESCO, World Economic Forum, Nikkei Asia, and then Harvard Kennedy School. Yeah, what sets us apart from other education learning apps is uh, we build for the bottom billions, you know, who has only mobile phone, and we democratize access, you know, not just the richest university in US or Brazil or UK have this uh, augmented reality learning, you know, and, and lab. We bring those labs into the homes of, you know, whose um, daily income is. Uh, like less than one dollar <laughs> so 
we democratize SS and the learning designs. You know, learning designs is uh, interactive. Uh, we as a parent of a digital native at home, we are being challenged constantly, you know, if the app is not fun and if the ad app is not interactive, uh, my daughter, she will not touch it. You know, she is a very active learner and she wants to play like, you know, learn as she plays, you know, not just watching a video tireless, you know, one after another. So we were given challenge by our daughter and to make the interactive learning and the learning design with the augmented reality, bringing abstracts into the pops, you know, like textbook pops, <laughs> like that. So, um, yeah, that sets us apart and also building for the bottom billions, you know, the, not just the students from Myanmar, but it has the potential to scale up to other, other countries who do not have, you know, expensive things like laptops or, you know, other devices. All they have is mobile phone and they don't even have internet, you know, to have regularly. Then it's no problem. You know, we build with the most challenging uh, situation in Myanmar. This, uh, electricity is a uh, luxury. Internet is a luxury. And if they have a cheap smartphone with like $100 uh, smartphone from China, that's all they have and we build it for that. You know, that sets us apart. And uh, recently, uh, we also received this Digital Innovation Award from Harvard Kennedy School uh, for uh, public service and using the innovation technology. Mm, so this was really like a tech innovation success story that was bringing together the reality in Myanmar and so many other developing countries and using technology and using the um, the, the kind of um, preferences of digital natives in terms of how they like to interact with the internet and what they were looking for. So using the platform and the advantages of the internet, but having a uh, background of met methodology and business that was very solid. And so, uh, and so the, the, the learning was able to take place. The app was able to be successful through uh, a lot of kids just enjoying to be able to do things on their phone, which is what kids everywhere like, but especially when uh, they don't have access to a lot of other types of um, uh, uh, what are luxuries for them that, that are more standard in other parts of the world. So, um, so that it, it sounds like that was just really a Myanmar tech success story in the making that was only able to come about because of the democratic reforms that allowed this kind of freedom and experiment and uh, new products to roll out, new ways of thinking happening. And uh, then with the coup, this, uh, this as well as so many other things are, are now in jeopardy of um, this kind of innovation. This progress is, uh, has, has now been stopped by this control trying to reassert itself. Yeah, Joe, it, it, it had been really difficult, uh, especially since after coup. Uh, in addition to safety concern of um, ourselves and our team, difficulty in financial transactions and sales operation really stole us from progressing any further. Uh, we had to uh, pause some of our operations apart from very important ones and the most damaging aspect of this uh, reckless mindless and stupid grabbing of power is that uh, investor confidence has really gotten down the drain uh, from the day one of the coup 
so has the consumer confidence and uh, brand value for uh, for a Burmese uh, brand like ours. But uh, fortunately for 368, uh, most of our assets are in intellectual and also on the cloud uh, as opposed to physically tied to the country. So we are now in the process of uh, restarting the business uh, as well and continuing the products and the services uh, we have worked so hard to develop over the uh, last uh, four years. Uh, but you're right, you know, it won't be a Myanmar brand or product uh, anymore. And uh, we have a very little chance to contribute to Myanmar economy, even with the potential future success um, that we might have. Uh, it is really uh, frustrating and uh, heartbreaking. And it's, it's beyond Myanmar, you know, since we imagine, you know, in the uh, Singularity University classroom, the challenge is to impact 1 billion people positively, right? And we know that in, since after 2016, and uh, due to the telecommunication transformation, one common medium that almost every household has is a mobile phone. It's, it has the same computing power, you know, uh, mobile phone enabled the first moon landing in 1969. <laughs> so we envision a day in the near future where access to quality learning is democratized by a mobile phone technology. And we are committed to making sure it's not something that remains as a dream. It's very much a reality. And uh, we are now on our way to make a uh, more uh, series of, you know, mobile learning apps to support of this uh, movement, civil disobedience movement in Myanmar for 12 million students and also uh, half a million teachers in Myanmar to be part of this movement and continuous learning at home, you know, safely. So we planning, planning uh, is well on our way to serve millions of students in English language and which give access to the world and the sciences you know, necessary to be full participants in the world to come. And we all know that the road to democracy is long and winding, but we believe that uh, continuous access to quality education will get there faster. Yeah, and I think stories like these are so important because as those of us outside the country are hearing about the coup, I think we often get caught in some of the the details that are happening day to day, just the terror in the streets, the repression, the just one bad story after another. And as bad as these more, I was going to say superficial, um, I don't mean superficial in a way that's unimportant, but they're they're just at the surface. They're things that we're reading and hearing about at the forefront of the uh, some of the negative uh, effects of the military takeover. And these are the things that are really in our mind, uh, just the things that we're hearing, reading about, seeing in videos, hearing testimonials of, things that are taking place in, in the streets, the confrontations between the security forces and the uh, activists. And stories like these are reminding us about just the depth of destruction, of senseless destructions that has been wrought by this illegal military takeover. That whether you're looking at education or environment or um, or intercultural interfaith dialogue or 
any number of things, entrepreneurial, uh, all of these fields that were all, despite the difficulties and the rough roads, were kind of trending in really positive directions. And there was uh, so much good that was coming through in Burmese society through these democratic reforms of people uh, able to follow their dreams and their passions in ways that they never had before. And through hard work, able to, um, to do things with their plans and their projects, whatever they were, and to see that blossoming year by year as they, as people came into contact with uh, ideas from other countries, with uh, the internet itself and, and and all of that, that all of these things were opening and moving in really exciting and dynamic ways. And so I think this conversation is also so important because as we look at the damage uh, that has been caused by the, the coup and the takeover, it's not just the things we're reading in the headlines. It's not just these stories that are popping out at us and that anyone who can just read or hear one thing, oh man, that's terrible. That's, you know, uh, that, that's the normal human response. But there's these much more damaging underlying structural problems that this coup is causing, such as your company on track to be a Myanmar-born technological success story that also was providing democratically access to education to people with limited resources and encouraging them to learn in ways that were methodologically sound, that this whole project is now somewhat in jeopardy or at least uh, challenged by not having access to a, uh, a society that is, is law-following and law-abiding and, uh, and, and where there's certain basic freedoms at place. And so it's just, it, it, it's so tragic and it just affects the lives of so many millions of people, not just now, but obviously for the future of um, what education means when you're able to educate children and what they're able to go on and do with that education and uh, and it also just uh, it, it tells us the stakes of this movement that this this is still an ongoing process. This was not a successful military coup. This was an attempted coup that is still being resisted in any number of ways, as you mentioned CDM and others today. And it just reminds us of the stakes of what is going on and why support is so needed by people within and outside the country right now to be able to put that democratic leadership back in place so that this uh, the, the trends that Myanmar society was going towards before the coup can be continued in some way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. The, uh, mm-hmm. the, um, the following the February 1st coup, um, military introduced cybersecurity law that's threatening mainly the Generation Z and Alpha, whose lives are entwined with digital tools on daily basis. You know? And then the, without the proper registration, anyone with the position of computer or having social media accounts or internet connections, they can be put into prison easily. The same old scare tactic is being used to make entire population criminal so that they can could, they can arrest anyone at their convenience. You know? And promoting digital learning will enable prolonged civil disobedience movement, which military dictator fear. <laughs> so, uh, social uh, business or providing digital learning solution for students and teachers, professional development become at a huge risk. At first, we pause, we just pause our operation 
to be part of the movement, you know, actively and due to our safety, our team members, you know, we pause. But then we had to move on locations, hiding for our personal safety. But we re- soon realized that these hiding in the camps and safety places are not sustainable solutions for our education mission, you know, and our personal safety. So we, we decided to, uh, seek out, you know, um, sustainable, um, safe place <laughs> for our mental and physical. And the way we are right now is safe and, uh, we continue to strive on, um, on our mission, you know, to continue with that, uh, we won't be intimidated. Yeah. Here, it is uh, important to state that um, educational solutions that we provide really fit um, current situations where security is the main concern for going to schools and to be able to provide access to quality education in the most difficult of circumstances. Um, that we, um, there's a continuity of learning for our young, younger generation and, uh, we need to, we need help, uh, rolling that, uh, plan out. Yeah. We are crowdfunding, uh, the crowdfunding platform will be up and running and we position ourselves as a Red Cross of education rolling out of this, uh, core subjects, English science and mathematics for grade one to grade 12. Altogether, there will be 49 uh, apps or 49 you know, apps for all these grades and uh, five is already done and uh, up to about 5 million students in the um, uh, primary level that we are serving. Uh, so far we don't reach to millions yet but uh, I think it's uh, um, well on the way and we need help and we can do this alone. Um, we are social enterprise uh, but now we are positioning ourselves as this you know, Red Cross of Education, so we need help from the individuals and also um, development partners uh, to be contributing to this fundraising. Uh, yeah. Right, and so um, you were talking about the uh, evolution, development of this business as you've had to change your own personal lives so dramatically, and I want to get back to that because you started off with that to lead off the episode and we never got to hear the rest of your personal story. So you, to recap where we left off, you had talked about three very terrifying encounters with police and military, both uh, in proximity of your home, as well as uh, when you were out on the street and this, and you did not know if this was targeting you specifically for being high profile, having been educated in the U S and advising Uh, public policy and previous administrations. So you felt for your family's safety to leave Yangon and go into the countryside. You successfully passed through some checkpoints to be able to uh, reach your destination. Um, Can you pick off where we left off and tell us where, uh, what, what happened at that point and how things were going? Yeah, the, when we were uh, hiding, it's uh, outside of Yango, and it's that place we have visited before when uh, my mom was uh, um, in the meditation camp. You know, we visited her uh, once or twice, and then that camp became the refugee camp, <laughs> basically. And when when we started, when we 
first one there, there were about 100 families, you know, it's being fed by the uh, Buddhist monk and it's a different zone, you know, a different wall. It's very peaceful and we do the uh, meditation and also we listen to the sermon. It's like a different wall we were there, but it's not uh, sustaining, you know. And uh, by the time we left the place, um, there were about 200 families I grew and they started uh, building the bomb shelter, you know. Um, so it's the place where we went there for meditation <laughs> become a refuge, you know, uh, a refugee camp in a way. And also, yeah. So I really appreciate the, the Buddhist communi community, you know, the place like we went, um, play, playing two roles, you know, uh, shelter for the uh, mentality, <laughs> spirituality, and also physical. Yeah. Yes, uh, we have left the country multiple times before. Uh, for work, for studies, for business trip, but this time we left, uh, it was really different. Uh, previously, even when we left for, for the U.S. to study for a long period of time, we were sure that we were coming back. So it wasn't that emotional. Uh, this time, we weren't that sure. Uh, we hope that uh, we'll be able to come back, but uh, it could just be a permanent relocation. So there was a tremendous sadness and, and felt that uh, something in us, uh, some part of us uh, died. Um, and uh, on top of that, uh, there was some sort of um, survival guilt. Um, we knew intellectually that uh, we have taken the best course of action under uh, this very difficult circumstances and uh, we will continue to be uh, working for the country uh, but still emotionally it's, it's, it's hard not to feel, feel guilty when um, uh, a lot of uh, the people in, in, in Myanmar are still uh, suffering tremendously. Um, these emotions were on top of this um, intense fear before, before you know, the, our plane departed uh, that something could happen to us uh, at the airport and uh, on, the way, on the way there. Mm, so you basically became refugees in hiding away from your home in the city at a Buddhist monastery in the countryside, which itself became home to a growing number of refugees who were fleeing for similar reasons as yourself and were actually building bomb shelters to be more sustainable over time. Amazing that they have the resources to be able to do all this at a, at a time like this when everything is just becoming broken and closed off. And then eventually you decided to leave the country. Uh, and I, I can't imagine what that must have been like to come back to your homeland with all of your gifts and skills and training to want to serve it and then to have to make the difficult decision to remove yourself from it. So emotionally, as well as logistically, I'm wondering about your exit from the country. W were you able to, to leave uh, safely? Did were, were there any risks in that physically? And then emotionally, what was it like to have to, um, to, have to decide to leave at this time? Mm. Yeah, personally, you know, um, from our work and also, you know, our school, I have been to United States for like 13, 14 times, you know, 
uh, and other countries about the same, you know, 14, 13 times, different countries. Um, been to like 15, 16 countries in my life. And never had I feel the same, you know. This time, not only the fear of getting arrested at the airport, but also the fear of not being able to go home or see the family again, you know. It's very difficult. <laughs> so you had referenced at the beginning of the conversation that when you arrived in a foreign country outside of Myanmar, just the process of showing your passport was that itself was, was quite a moment, quite an emotional moment of transition. So could you say more about what that was like then? Yeah, during uh, the transit points, um, there were police in the, you know, terminals, uh, just walking around and making sure people's okay, you know, and sawing them, my heart jumps, you know, and I held my daughter's hand tightly and she was also, you know, scared. <laughs> this police, we know that, you know, they are not from Myanmar and they are not there to threaten us or, you know, to put us into danger, but... That was our first encounter in the transit point. And when we came into our final destination too at the airport, the uniform personnel you just checking checking our passport and you know randomly and checking our luggages and got so scared. <laughs> I, I have nothing in my uh, belongings to be scared of, you know. I have nothing illegal or anything, but they are the uniform personnel, you know. And the trauma we had from your mind, you know, that plays back. <laughs> and yeah. Right. I, I mean, you're going from seeing these people in uniforms and being used to them as lawless agents of terror that are able to do anything at any time without penalty, and then being in another country where these people are wearing different uniforms, but, but, uh, also performing a similar role are actually not being lawless agents of terrors, but are trying to uphold those laws. And although in uh, United States and other countries, certainly not to say that all policemen and, and soldiers are, you know, following the rule of law perfectly in everything that they do, but that there are certainly more procedures in place than what we're seeing with the security forces in Myanmar just running reckless at every turn and actually being encouraged to inflict this terror. So that's, that's really, um, I, I can imagine that moment, um, what a profound thing it was. And the experience of being the night watch, you know, after, uh, even after midnight, you know, that, uh, when I was sleeping here in this place and hearing the car press by, during my sleep, I woke up and then, you know, rush out. And then I realized, no, I'm not back home. <laughs> I don't need to report. Mm. Right. And you mentioned about your grabbing your daughter's hand tightly at that moment. Uh, your daughter has been with you through all of this. She's young and she grew up before the coup in what was a much more peaceful and safe society. And she's now been with you through the coup, through having to run into hiding at the monastery, through having to escape uh, and, and be outside. So what has her experience been in bringing on this new world. And I should also mention, as I'm asking that, I'm recalling what you said at the beginning of the conversation in 1988 
of going into the streets yourself when you were her age, seeing decapitated heads on spikes and, and, and you awakening to this reality of terror at that time in 1988, coming from a place of innocent childhood and now her going through somewhat of a similar experience now. So what has it been like with her? What has she been going through? Our daughter really has been uh, amazingly resilient. Um, although she hasn't been in any uh, formal consulting session, uh, as far as we could uh, observe, uh, she has uh, been doing very well, uh, at least for, for, for six years. But uh, she's, she seems to have uh, developed some fear for uh, uniform personnel. Uh, apart from that, she, she seems to be quite okay. Yeah, um, more than 3,000 politicians, scholars, educators, students, and educators have been detained and locked inside prisons where their bodies are tortured and their rights violated because Myanmar is under siege. And ordinary people of Myanmar are paying too heavy a price in search of their basic human rights and civil rights. And many have sacrificed so much so that the next generation uh, can have a bigger, brighter future. And we will not let their sacrifices to be wasted. And we'll continue to work on our mission to serve millions of students with democratizing access to continuous access to quality education. And we fully believe that um, this the road to democracy is long, but um, education, access to education will get there faster. And we are committed to doing so. Thank you very much. Yes, um, I want to say that um, this crisis in in Myanmar currently we are experiencing uh, will be the important in the history of um, not only um, our country but uh, of the whole region and possibly to the to the whole world. Um, I don't think it is, and uh, it should just be the struggle for Burmese people. It is a humanity struggle against its own uh, demon, uh, its own demon uh, in the form of uh, military authoritarianism and totalitarianism. Um, and it's definitely not a political problem, not just a political problem for only Aung Suji and National League for Democracy. So any help that uh, any of uh, you can give to those in the front line of the struggle and the movement will uh, have a greater impact uh, than changing just a few lives. Um, it will determine uh, what kind of world that we want to live in uh, in in twenty first century and beyond. So, so please help. Yeah, those are powerful words, and thanks for sharing that. And I think that it also underscores a point that was made a bit earlier in our conversation, that this was a coup that was initiated and attempted. This is not a coup that was successful and that has taken over. And we are still living through this process day by day. And there are things that all of us can do in our roles to help make the coup unsuccessful. 
And that's more of a long-term goal, but there are also things that we can help to do to make life there more bearable and supportive, even as this attempted coup persists, uh, even however long this is taking so that uh, the, the lives of people as they're living them day to day is not under the same kind of terror and deprivation that the military is trying to put them under. And just as you have used your resources and your background, both before the coup as the democratic transition was taking place, as well as since February 1st, and you're using all of your your resources to help the people there in your capacity, as you just kind of inferred, um, you're building this app to help the CDM workers uh, outside of just the education of uh, the younger kids. So that's, that, that's just a beautiful example of how in our different positions we could do things that serve this moment and serve people there. And so it's a, I think it's a really profound reminder just to all of us, to those of us who are living in somewhat more free societies with more rights that are guaranteed that we do have the luxury and the ability to use that freedom that many of us might take for granted for a higher service of those that do not have it or that have immense penalties for doing things that we wouldn't think twice about. And uh, and there's so much that all of us can do. Um, there's big things and small things, and the small things matter a lot, uh, even if it's nothing more than just reaching out to some friend you have somewhere in Myanmar and just letting them know that they're in your hearts, they're in your prayers, they're in your metta. Uh, something as small as that goes a long, long way to all the way up to volunteering or donating or creating or advocating or protesting here in wherever your country is. There's now protests for free Myanmar around the world. So I think there's there's so much that all of us can do. And this is just one story of one thing that has been done and is being done. And, you know, I hope it also serves as a, as a greater inspiration for everyone out there to, to think about their own stations and their own advocacy. Well, thanks for taking time to uh, have a conversation with us. It's been a, quite difficult to uh, go back to the uh, memory lane, but uh, it's worth uh, revisiting and sharing with you I certainly can understand and appreciate uh, going back to some of those painful memories that maybe this is the first time since they've happened that they've been revisited. And uh, you know, thank you for sharing that vulnerably with our audience so they can have a better understanding. And with that, I really wish you safety uh, in terms of where you are now and what you're trying to do and success in some of those initiatives. And thanks so much for taking the time to be here and to join us. Thank you.
Thank you for taking the time to listen to this show. I understand that this is an enormously difficult time for many people these days, myself included, and just the mere fact of staying informed is helping to keep a focus on this pertinent issue. And the only way that we can do our job of continuing to provide this content at this very critical time is through the support of generous donors, listeners like yourselves. So if you found this episode of value and would like to see more shows like this on the current crisis, please consider making a donation to support our efforts. Either monthly pledges or one-time donations are fully appreciated, and all funds go immediately to the production of more episodes like this one. Thank you deeply in advance, and best wishes at this time. If you would like to join in our mission to support those in Myanmar who are resisting the military coup, we welcome your contribution in any form, currency, or transfer method. Every cent goes immediately and directly to funding those local communities who need it most. Donations go to support such causes as the Civil Disobedience Movement, CDM, families of deceased victims, and the purchasing of protective equipment and medical supplies. Or if you prefer, you can earmark your donation to go directly to the guest you just heard on today's show. In order to facilitate this donation work, we have registered a new nonprofit called Better Burma for this express purpose. Any donation you give on our Insight Myanmar website is now directed to this fund. Alternatively, you can visit our new Better Burma website, which is betterburma.org, and donate directly there. In either case, your donation goes to the same cause, and both websites accept credit cards. You can also give via PayPal by going to paypal.me slash betterburma. Additionally, we can take donations through Patreon, Venmo, GoFundMe, and Cash App. Simply search Better Burma on each platform and you'll find our account. You can also visit either website for specific links to those respective accounts or email us at info at betterburma.org. In all cases, that's Better Burma, one word, spelled B-E-T-T-E-R-B-U-R-M-A. If you would like to give in another way, please contact us. Thank you so much for your kind consideration.